I'm Pinky and I'm Lucy and welcome to Thank Folk for Feminism. We're so happy you're here. We're your one-stop shop for fun, fierce and uplifting stories and interviews celebrating women in folk. So join us, feminist allies and all, while we crack this conversation wide open and influence positive change with you by our sides. But as this is the first episode, we wanted to take a moment to tell you who's leading the Thank Folk for Feminism charge. So without further ado, let me introduce Lucy Ward, singer, songwriter, BBC Folk Award winner and activist. Lucy has graced stages up and down the country. She's an alumni of Glastonbury's famous left field stage, a former musicians union representative, and she's dedicated her life to stories of change, love and social justice. She fuses reworkings of traditional songs with her own offerings across her extensive back catalogue. She explores themes of so-called honour-based violence, pens kick-ass protest songs, and brings new life to old murder ballads. In short, she's nothing short of amazing. Oh, that was quite lovely. Well, you are my esteemed co-host, Lisa Pinky Ward. No relation, but she's certainly my sister from another mister. Pinky is the CEO of Oxford Sexual Abuse and Rape Crisis Centre and lived experience consultant at King's College London. She's a passionate lover of folk music and she's run More Than The Music, a collective of women music writers and photographers for 10 years. She's a seasoned campaigner and tireless advocate for women and I couldn't be more proud to be sharing, creating this podcast alongside her. Oh, you make me sound dead impressive. You are dead impressive, it's true. (laughs) Wow, likewise, right back at you. Um, so we're super happy that you are here listening thanks for joining us on our first ever attempt at a podcast on our first ever episode we're really looking forward to you getting to know us more and joining us as we speak to some wonderful women in folk It's important that you know that for us, feminism is intersectional. We're aiming to platform the voices of a range of women and non-binary folk, making sure that we give space to women of colour, disabled women and other individuals who have less access to platforms and spaces. We want this platform to be co-created and led by our listeners. If you know someone we should be speaking to, then please let us know via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or our website, thankfolkforfeminism.co.uk. But before we get into the meat of the episode, Lucy, why don't you start by telling me one thing about you that you think our listeners should know? I think getting into the meat of the episode is a hilarious analogy for a a vegan talking to another (laughs) vegan to pick. But yes, let us get into this nut roast. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Oh, a strange fact. Well, actually... We're sort of living out a a dream of mine, a fantasy of mine, because one of the things that I've always wanted to do is host a radio show. And with this podcast, it's almost like it's happening. And in my mind, I kind of think up playlists and people I'd like to interview and what I might say and stuff like that. And the first song I imagined I would play on the radio, although sadly we don't have uh, the money for a PRS license right now. So we don't have music in our podcast apart from the stuff graciously sung by our guests. Um, the first song that I always wanted to play was The Clashes, Know Your Rights. So perhaps something inside me knew I was going to be, you know, doing a radio show that was about 
protest and activism and uh, and making a change. <laughs> I absolutely love that we have clearly both grown up with the same dream and the same passion. Um, I definitely wanted, still want, I think, um, to be a radio host. And you're right, you know, we can't uh, bring the music to the show, but perhaps what we can do is think about creating a Spotify playlist to accompany it so we can sneak our influence in wider. Hey, have you just made some more work for us? Never. <laughs> this was all Pinky's idea, guys. She uh, she dropped me a message on Facebook. I had this idea for a, a podcast. It's about folk music and feminism. Do you like the idea of it? And, and obviously I said yes. And now here we are and we're proper, properly excited that this has come into being and you're here listening to it. I love it. And I love that I knew instinctively you would be the one woman to say yes without considering any of the aspects of any of the work that we would need to do to put into <laughs> making this happen. We are both um, absolute dreamers, I think. Yeah, totally. That, that's, that's, that's how it happened, folks. <laughs> uh, anyway, we should get on with the show. But before we get into it, uh, don't forget to share, rate and review so that others can find us. Otherwise, they won't know we exist. This month, we were honoured to speak with singer, songwriter, activist and legend Peggy Seeger. She gracefully shared with Thank Folk for Feminism her sage insights on folk music, feminism and how her songs have been anthems for change. Recorded back in December 2020, when we thought tier three level lockdowns were the worst thing that could happen, we explored our first theme, music as a form of activism. Woohoo! Today, as our inaugural guest, we are so excited because we've been joined by uh, a legend of the folk scene, a formidable creative force um, within the UK and US scenes, the fabulous Peggy Seeger. At 85 years old, she's talked up over 60 years in the industry and she's a songwriter who's written songs that span generations. She's an activist, she's a socialist, and we're really excited that um, you can be here to share some of that sage insight and hard-won knowledge with us over the years. So Peggy Seeger, welcome to Thank Folk for Feminism. Thank you very, very much, Lucy. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. How are you doing today? <clears throat> well, today is different from yesterday. <laughs> because I'm talking to you. Uh, there are little gems every day, but I've been self-isolating since the middle of March. And I don't go out to shops. Uh, I walk, but I mean, I haven't seen, uh, I haven't seen my partner for 18 months. She lives in New Zealand. And we haven't been able for various reasons to get back and forth. But um, uh, uh, we talk every morning and every evening. Uh, and at some point we'll probably get together, but I don't want to fly anymore. She doesn't want to fly anymore and I'm nattering on, but I'm fine. <laughs> no, thank you so much for sharing because it has just been the, the oddest year of not going out, not performing, not being able to be with the people that we love. And, um, and I'm sure we'll get onto more of the, or we might get onto more of the effects of COVID and creativity in a bit. But I wanted to start with, I um, had a little phone call with you before we set up this meeting and 
it was fantastic because the first thing you said to me was your title you do realize that's very contentious don't you folk and feminism they're not natural bedfellows and I after I got off the phone call with you I got on the phone to Pinky and was like you just you just nailed it you're so right so I thought that the first thing we could talk about was exploring the tradition the issues that it holds, the misogyny within traditional lyrics and uh, and kind of where the line of preserving traditional song and, um, and you know, making sure we don't perpetuate the patriarchy is. For years and years and years, until about, I would say, the early 80s. Wait a second. No, it would have been the early 70s when I made up the song Gonna Be an Engineer. Uh, I sang songs that were so anti-female anti that it was unbelievable. And uh, probably the, the, the highest point of anti-female is this tiny little Puritan piece. Um, and my brother Pete sang it. I sang it. Americans of both genders sang it. It goes like this. And it's for Puritan times. Now we're talking about 1600s. Oh, I had a wife and got no good of her. Here is how I easy got rid of her. Took her out and chopped the head off her early in the morning. Seeing as how there was no evidence for the sheriff or his reverence, they had to call it an act of providence early in the morning. So if you've a wife and get no good of her, here is how you easy get rid of her. Take her out and chop the head off her early in the morning. <laughs> Oh my goodness. It's really interesting that you should mention that, Peggy, because of course you have lectured on some of these issues previously. Tell us more about that. I sang songs about women who were um, transported to Australia for nagging, who were sold as, into slavery because they, they, they didn't make good wives. I sang songs like Devilish Mary, where uh, if I ever get married again, it'll be for love, not riches. Marry a little girl about two feet high so she won't wear my britches. Uh, it's laced. Anglo-American folk music, the more so what went to America than, you know, I think we exacerbated it. Uh, we were a pioneer culture. And even though women were amazingly strong and tough and did all kinds of agricultural and industrial jobs. There are still these songs uh, in which women are just marginalized, downplayed, uh, murdered, uh, sent into slavery, transported, etc., etc. <clears throat> There's no mention of no wages, no mention of less wages. So I sang these songs for years. Uh, and I lived with a man for years who, there was a gender divide, definitely. And there were things, uh, and I blame myself for that. Uh, I don't mean that he was violent or ab abusive, which he wasn't. It was just, there were things he just didn't do, you know. And there were things that I always did. And I was always busy, always busy, always busy. He had time to sit down in front of the television. He had time to do his writing. Um, so I lived a gender divided life without any abuse. 
and I accepted it and I was in a way kind of proud of the fact that I could be busy 28 hours of the day. You know? So I would sit next to him and I'd sing songs that were so anti-female and that were so patriarchally uh, unfair that neither of us commented on it. You know? So um, I think the songs, the lecture is quite, quite interesting. It talks about women as property being handed, because that's what the marriage ceremony is. Your hand is handed over from the father to the husband. That I will give your hand in marriage. Uh, so women as property and women as not being able to have property. Uh, there's, there's women being burned at the stake because they fall in love with the wrong man who won't, you know, uh, and, and, and uh, men being murdered because they uh, come seeking, you know, uh, a farmer's son comes seeking the, the Lord's daughter when they, they murder him or they uh, transport him. Uh, so um, I think the songs uh, more or less show women as uh, property, as victims, uh, and, and women played on that. They played on it. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I mean, a deserted wife always was either pregnant or, uh, or she had a baby in her arms. She didn't have a toddler at her knee or a teenage, couple of teenage children. It was a baby. You have to feel sorry for me. You know, poor me. You know? So it's quite interesting. Uh, I think they were uh, transmitted to teach women our place in society and to teach this as a norm, as normality. There's a, a Lonesome Jack is an interesting thing. You know those songs where it's Monday I did this, Tuesday I did that, Wednesday I did. Monday morning I married me a wife, toodle um a rajo, riddle um ya. Monday morning I married me a wife for her. Monday morning I married me a wife, thinking I'd have a different life, sing a little I Tuesday morning I took her home, toodle um a rajo, riddle um ya. Tuesday morning I took her home for her. Tuesday morning I took her home, now I've got me a wife of my own, sing fall little I Wednesday morning she cursed and swore, toodle um rajo, toodle um ya. Wednesday morning she cursed and swore her her. Wednesday morning she cursed and swore, thought by God she'd kill me sure, sing fall little I do. Thursday morning I whopped her well, toodle um rajo, riddle um ya. Thursday morning I whopped her well for her. Thursday morning I whopped her well, she hopped about like the devil in hell, sing fall little I do. Friday morning I took her back to Lamarajo, Rilamya. Thursday morning, Friday morning I took her back for her. Friday morning I took her back. Saturday morning was Lonesome Jack, St. Paul, little I go. My big gin bottle is my best friend, to Lamarajo, Rilamya. My big gin bottle is my best friend for her.
A big gin bottle is my best friend, and my week's work has come to an end. Sing foul little I don't. So it's routine. <clears throat> you marry her, you take her home, she swears, you beat her, you take her back. I was singing normality. I still sing some of these songs, but I always preface it with saying something about it. Start, it's about starting a conversation, isn't it? You can't change somebody's mind through the course of a three-minute song, but you can open the door to them exploring things further, can't you? Yeah, yeah. The lecture that I gave wasn't just all songs about abuse. There were songs about fighting back and songs about how women dealt with this. And a whole section of songs, new songs that women had written, you know. Now, one excellent song that a man has written, Mike Watterson of the Watersons, you know. You know Stitching Time. Oh, yes, it's a wonderful song. Yeah. <laughs> I put it on my first album, actually. I sing it. Um, I, yeah, it's an absolutely tremendous song. <laughs> the first time I ever heard it was with Martin Carthy singing it. And I was completely blown about because I had never heard a man sing a song like that. Well, it's based on a true story, apparently. Got it from a cutting in the newspaper, which just makes it all the better. <laughs> I love it, yeah. Anyway, I sing the songs because they're history, because it's a safe way of starting a controversy. It's the safe way of reminding ourselves what is still with us and what we've gotten rid of. But I always say something about it. And some of them are very clever. Very clever songs. But on the flip right, Peggy, you've also written a lot of songs that speak to issues for women, you know. So, you know, you're doing both, aren't you? You know, you're, you're singing songs about them. But I guess, you know, you said earlier about, you know, kind of pre-70s or early on, you were singing very anti-female mm -hmm. songs. So what mm -hmm. For you, what changed that direction of travel where you thought actually oh, <laughs> gonna be an engineer changed that? Yeah, I only wrote that because Ewan wanted me to write a song about women for a theatrical um, uh, pre presentation that the group we were working with uh, did every year, and uh, he was writing the script. And he came downstairs, he said, you know, it's the year of the women, so we need, <laughs> even just the thought of that. <sighs> yeah. The year of the dog. <laughs> the year of the mayfly. Uh, well, whatever. Uh, and that song just rolled out because I was in the middle of doing the accounts. And it's so strange it rolled out. And I went to, uh, I was immediately, invited to go and sing to feminist groups. And I'm ashamed to say that in the late 60s, early 70s, I did not even know what a feminist was. I was nowhere near that. So uh, that, that, that uh, whole issue plunged me into feminism because I was asked to feminist groups to sing a song. Finish it, and they said, sing us another one. <laughs> <laughs> and all I had was, I hadn't even analyzed the songs with gender implications that I had. I hadn't analyzed them. So that really, um, it, it, uh, it shot me like a cannon 
into the into the arms of of of, of the women's movement, which I found also had quite a lot of, uh, it didn't have violence in it, but it had an awful lot of small splinter groups. And uh, well, that's what the left does. The right stays in one great big lumpy pack, but the left always splits into things. Uh, so I decided to, to find out about it because the feminists, they said, look, you've written this fantastic song. Well, I don't know if it was fantastic. It had a lot of words, a lot of chords. It was very long. And I was amazed that people were learning it. And they said, why are you singing the, the, these other songs that, that you sing? And they began to talk. <laughs> they evangelized me. <laughs> I started looking at other issues and decided to make a soft feminist album. And then the one I'm most proud of is different, therefore equal, because I took this subject, this subject, this, and made a different style of song. Um, for each one. So that's what uh, galvanized me. Um, some of them uh, are, are very almost antagonistic, um, but really when I think of, you know, the whole women's thing, I, I feel a kind of a existential outrage that half of, that half of the human race doesn't get equal wages, gets bashed around, gets left with the, with the, with the children, single, single, single mothers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we can't walk alone at night, which I do every night. I walk the streets of the little village I live in. And um, my sons worry about it. I said, why? You know, uh, it, it's a safe little village. And they said, well, you never know. And you do never know. Why should we be, you know? And I, I just get this anger that it's kind of like having chains around you all the time. But writing songs like Davy, and, and you mentioned Davy, which I'm very pleased that, that you know about. I think Davy, um, we were particularly kind of interested in it because it literally is a conversation yeah. um, starter with a, with a man. And... Um, and I think that that it was really interesting to hear you just speak about how often when you're writing, your uh, intended audience is at the focus of why and how you create the song. Mm. Um, and of course, in the case of Davy, it's it's the song and the story of and to one man, but actually the the um, you know of course has resonances for having this conversation with anybody at all. Yeah. No, well, he's a friend. He's a dear friend. I was talking, it was his birthday, wait a minute, day before yesterday. He lives in Asheville, North Carolina. And I was talking to him about it. And I sent him the song two days ago. He didn't know I'd made it up about him. I haven't heard from him since. Not, <laughs> not for two days. I'm interested in what he thinks. Yeah. So um, it's, it, it's important to to present songs of different of, of different types. So that's why I write songs of different types. Also, to keep myself from being bored. It's a noble aim to have to keep from being bored, especially in months and months of isolation. Um, so, of course, you're bringing out a new record um, in the coming months, The First Farewell. Yeah, well, um, it probably is a last farewell for, for performing because uh, this year was going to test whether I think I can continue 
touring and singing. And of course, we had 26 dates that all just were wiped off the slate with one go. We have one for next year, uh, for most of May and June. We have a lot of dates and I hope I can do it because I'll be 86 by that time. And um, every year that goes by, I get less able. My hands have bad arthritis in them. And I get less able, even though I practice every day. Uh, and my voice is tired because it's been, it's been subjected to smoke for 15 or 20 minutes. Um, so this CD was meant to go along with the tour. Uh, it, it doesn't have any songs in it, I think, that were tied to, has one little kind of reference to Trump, just a little bit in one of the songs but it's just in passing, you know, this. It's an interesting album. Um, it has two, what I call rogue songs, songs that are hard for me to, to um, describe. When I start songwriting, it's, uh, it's a habit that I can't get out of. I immediately start wanting rhyming couplets. Uh, it's the, British form, you know, some of our, you know, I'm reading um, Carol Ann Duffy's book, uh, The World's Wife, Have you? it's poetry, and it's wonderful the way she just never gets into that, she, she's fabulous, she's wonderful, as is her ex-partner Jackie Kay, um, but the, the rhyming couplet is what everybody goes to normally, so these rogue songs, which are, one's called Dandelions and Clover, and it's about memory of past loves. Uh, and the other one is uh, called The Puzzle, and it's about, uh, well, I asked uh, um, five or six of my close relatives what they thought the song was about. And one of them said it was about life, and another one said it was about love, and another one said it was about something that happened to you, but I don't know what. None of them, uh, oh yes, my son finally said what it was about. I won't say, because I don't want it to go on, on this. Yeah. Uh, but So it was a puzzle to people who were listening as well, which was wonderful because that means that they can apply it to their own lives. So those are rogue songs and they go, uh, I don't... You know, there's no rhyming couplets in them, and they, 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 they wrote, they're kind of half classical. Then there's one called Invisible Woman, which I, uh, my son and I wrote, because he's 61 now, and he was complaining that he felt invisible to women. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and I said, you know, I said, look, you know, there's men of, of 60 who are, who are marrying women of, 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 of 20 and 30 and 40. He said, you know, uh, there's lots of 20 year old women who would love to, to marry George Clooney without a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> and I must say, I fancied Paul Newman for years. <laughs> You're not supposed to know who he was even. So um, uh, he and I wrote that song together. And uh, then there's another song called Lubrication which uh, begins as a, uh, a salacious song and turns into climate change. Then there's songs about mental 
mental grasping of being where we are in society. Another one is about sitting on your phone and not being with the person that you're with. Uh, another one about um, the women who come from the Philippines or from Indonesia or from India to work in the households of mostly white people here. Uh, I actually uh, used a lot of from a conversation of a couple of women who came to clean the house here. These were two Filipino women who came, Daisy and Grace. And they were fabulous. They sang as they worked. They had children at home. And they talked about their children that they had to leave because they earned 10 times as much here, 20 times as much here. One of them put her daughter through university with cleaning houses in Britain. So there's that. Uh, there's a song uh, about a teenager who committed suicide, a boy, true song. Uh, a love song for my partner, a song called How I Long for Peace, which is as close to directly political as I can get. And then another kind of rogue song called Gotta Get Home by Midnight, which I wrote uh, as an ego trip. I wrote it as an, as an encore, only to be sung as an encore, about having to get home so I have to run goodbye, you know, as a last song. And it's funny because it, it's uh, based on Cinderella. So it's 11 songs that are, I don't think any of them are hard to take. They're nothing like Right to Life. They're nothing like The Cavemen. So um, making songs out of other people's lives, I've done about 12 or 14 of them. The longest one is 10 minutes long. And I think probably the shortest is Davy, because that's things that he said, you know. He didn't know I was recording them in my head. And when you record someone, you not, don't only use the, the words, you use their breathing patterns. Um, you use the whole aura of, of how they are. Uh, with Francis Crow, uh, that's Peaceful Woman Fighting Hard. Have you heard that one? That's the nine minute one. And she was a 90 year old peace activist who'd been arrested more times than she could remember. She says, oh, it could, it could be 50 times, it could be 60, I haven't, I haven't counted. She said, and the last time when I left, she said they took me to the sheriff's office for the sheriff wanted to shake my hand. And I saw that he had a picture of me up on his wall. <laughs> and I said, he, and, and, and she asked him why. He said, because you have a record. You're, you're, you're a record. You're the most one I've had in here most often in Northampton. So uh, if you're going to write a song about somebody, it's not just information they're giving you. They're giving you who they are in so many ways. You have to see them, talk to them. Um, when I wrote the song RSI, you've heard that one? Yes. Yeah. And she was, she was a broken woman, I've, and she didn't want her name mentioned, so I've forgotten that it was Jennifer something, but I can't remember the rest of it. She was very afraid when she talked to me. She didn't want her firm mentioned. She didn't want her boss mentioned. And I played the song back to her, and she was quite happy that she was now anonymous. But she was broken by the fact, and both of her arms were strapped up. She couldn't use them. She had been, she'd ruined them typing. 
And uh, so that song had a lot of anger in it because she was quietly just so angry she could hardly contain herself. So writing about people, you can't, as a songwriter, really... I don't think you can write a song about somebody if you've been in their skin or at least talk to them, interview them, and made them respect what you're going to do, and then taking the song back and saying, is this, does this please you? Yeah. You've heard the ballad of Jimmy Massey? Yes. Yeah, because I took it back to him, and I said, what do you think of this? He says, well, I only have one collect, connect, uh, correction. He says, oh, I wasn't born in Texas. I was born in North Carolina. <laughs> And with Woman on Wheels, uh, uh, Jennifer Jones uh, objected to one of the, uh, and she she said the worst thing she says is the shops, the shops. You can't see any of the merchandise. So I substituted that. So with Frances Crow, when I gave her a nine minute song, uh, she sat there for quite a while. She said, well, that wasn't quite what I expected. But she says, it's me, all right. So that's what really you want to say, because the song is being made for them, I mean. Why make a song? Why not let them speak for themselves? It's just a different way of bringing the person forward and bringing them forward in a way they might not do themselves. Nora Jones, in her song, um, Come Away With Me, she says, uh, and I will write you a song. And to write a song about or for somebody, people regard it as a real honor. And uh, I suppose if anybody ever wrote a song about me, I'd probably want to hear it. Uh, I don't really want anybody to write a song about me. Not really, I don't. Nobody has had. Oh, yeah, some one person tried it. You don't want it to be just nothing but how wonderful you are. You want it to, to talk about your insecurities. Well, it sounds, Peggy, like kind of what you're talking about, right, is that amplification of other people's stories, other people's voices, which is, you know, in many ways takes us back to early feminist work around consciousness raising and bringing groups of women together to share stories. Like, but in the the folk industry it's just done in a slightly different way isn't it you know in music we we take songs and stories and we transform them into something that other people will then pay attention to or listen to or you know take us back to those three minute conversation starters as we were saying earlier and and you can sing the story over and over and over which you can't with a conversation oh we missed one aging in the industry Go for it. Tell us about your experience. In the folk folk industry, you kind of get more honored, I think. Uh, Or if you do yourself up like Dolly Parton, and I think she's absolutely fabulous. She says, I'm not not dumb and I'm also not blonde. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm, I'm a fringe singer in the folk industry here. Um, as my book says, uh, when June McCall died, nobody wanted me on my own. I sing American songs, and the move was towards British songs, English, Scots, Irish, Welsh. Uh, so even now, um, I'm, I'm not booked in, in folk clubs, or I don't... I'd be interested to know if the folk clubs 
are still singing songs about logging and mining and fishing and hunting and oh, so a lot of them were so male orientated. Um, and that was where the, 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 the excellent chorus singing came in with all of those songs, a lot of them, shanties and stuff like that. But uh, for the most part, people are more interested in me because I am old. And I think a lot of it is that they're, especially in COVID times, better get her now because she might die. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I have, I have no idea whether it's that or not, but I do an interview about every other day now. Wow. Not as interesting as this one. Um, and they're from all over the world. I did one from a Japanese um, uh, radio company the other day, and he was really interested in feminism. He really was. On the folk scene in America, I'm doing quite a lot of... Um, uh, Zooms of folk groups who say, I mean, uh, most of the folk uh, groups in America couldn't afford to bring me over uh, because, um, you know, getting there with all of the expenses. And, and now I travel only with my agent, I, my manager, who's my daughter-in-law. That's Carrie. Uh, so I'm on the I'm on the fringe over here, uh, excepting for songwriting. You know, winning the um, best contemporary song of 2018, I think it was, was huge for me. With my son, a song my son Callum and I wrote. Uh, it was I appear, um, but they they talk about about me as an icon which I don't know if it's a compliment with all these little icons all over my screen. <laughs> or they talk about me as a legend or a leg end, as my second son says. But I don't, I don't particularly like those. I don't, I don't like it. Uh, it. I don't like the idea of there being some kind of hierarchy. My experience is my experience. And the experience of Norma Waterson, who, who is also an icon and a legend, Maybe they just think we're heroes because we live so long. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's interesting, isn't it, that you say, you know, in the industry it feels like you are, you're elevated to that status because of your age. And yet, you know, actually a lot of the time, women in broader general society, like the older you get, the more invisible you come. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My first experience of that was probably when I was about, 50, 55, 60. I was walking down Oxford Street with my daughter and she always dresses to the nines. She, is, she knows how to dress herself really nicely. And practically every man that approached, including men on the arm of another woman, would see us. This is before Oxford Street got to be like a shoal of fish. Uh, and would see us, it would look at me and immediately shift over to her and look down and up. It was fascinating. And then they move on, you know. It's like that statue in Manchester of the naked woman. I've forgotten what the statue is. And it has just at hand height a, a woman's bottom, naked bottom. And it's very shiny. 
<laughs> they, did, they, did a, they did a funny uh, short candid camera thing on it and it showed uh, people passing this and the men's hands just went up automatically and just touched it as they passed. <laughs> the lucky charm. Yeah, so I look on it being old as being redundant. Or everything you need to know about men's entitlement of women's bodies, right? That that's so automatic, even on a statue. Let's let's move on to these questions about um, the folk scene and um, what has changed over the years. Have things improved? Um, and where where are the next steps? Do you see Peggy for the folk scene to kind of address? Um, equality and gender balance and misogyny? This is going to be a very short answer because I know almost nothing about the folk scene. I'm not part of it anymore. I hardly even know a lot of the names of the singers because I don't listen to music casually. I don't listen to it as background for anything else. If I'm going to listen to somebody's cassette or CD that they've sent me, because they still do, I have to stop work and sit down and listen. I can't do other things except ironing. <laughs> and yes, I still iron things. Um, so I really, and I haven't been to a folk club in a long time. We have one that I go to sometime, which is used to be at the pub called The Folly, uh, which is now called The White House. And you can hear some nice folk songs there, but it's never full and it's never exuberant. Um, uh, I've sung there several times, but the trouble is that I, I go there as an icon and, uh, and whenever I go there, I am an icon to them. And I would like just to kind of disappear. Maybe I'll get myself a wig. That might be, but I, don't. <laughs> I know very, very little. I do know that an awful lot of songs are being sung that have diddly squat to do with folk. You know, and they're being called folk, and they're not. You know, folk to me has a definite meaning. And what is your your meaning of folk? Well, my meaning kind of comes from from a, a, a long time ago, uh, before we had radio and before we had mass media, when people were living in a community and they made songs about what happened in the community, and people in the community sang them. And then when those people, uh, maybe when new people came in, they became part of that community and brought new songs that then changed. And it was all by ear, or most of it by ear, unless it had been anthologized, which the British did a lot. There's a lot of books of, of English and Scottish folk songs from the collectors in the 1800s and 1900s. Uh, and then there was the broadsheet people who, who published um, you know, uh, broadsheets of songs, which then became popular. Um, so that, the, I know what I sing that are folk songs. For the most part, you don't know who wrote them. That's, you know, for years, decades, the folk music, high uh societies have been trying to define folk music. And they have a hard time because what is it, you know? And one of the things they did come up with was that a song exists in a number of, of, of different forms and that nobody knows who wrote it and that it has traveled. And uh, 
So uh, me writing a song like uh, The Ballad of Spring Hill, which sounds like a folk song, uh, it's an honor. They, there are people who don't know who made that up. There are other people who think Ewan made it up. Uh, and it's now uh, all known all over Canada. And the, it, people think it's a folk song. And to me, that is such an honor, a fantastic honor. Uh, the same has happened to Ewan's song, uh, Shoals of Herring, which in Ireland is called The Shores of Erin. Yeah, parts of Ireland. So um, that's what a folk song is to me in terms of uh, content and tune. It is also a style. It's a style. And in almost all of the folk communities in the, in the Anglo-American context, uh, if they had one or two or three instruments, they were portable, or maybe they were no instruments for singing. But the style of singing was almost like speaking, but with a melody. Uh, there was no histrionics, no going up and down in, 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 in pitch from one verse to another, uh, no slowing down at the end. They just sang it, and that was it. Uh, in, in both British, if you listen to the old recordings, it's, it's, um, it's singing simple instead of what Americans sometimes call singing pretty. So when, as I described in the book, someone standing up at one of the big folk concerts and singing an old ballad, which she did announce what it was. I can't remember if she announced it or not. And she had, I think, three trumpets, two or three guitars, a bass, drums. Uh, she had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight performers, musicians, instrumentals, singing this ballad. And on she goes, she starts singing. And I can't understand a word of what she is singing because the accompaniment, quite honestly, is both brilliant and horrifying. It's brilliant in, in, the, in the skill of her players and horrifying in the fact that it completely drowns out the ballad. So I turned to my son and I said, what ballad is that? He said, Mom, it's The Outlandish Night. Now, it's a, it's a ballad I sing. It's a bluebeard ballad. And the style of singing could have been from, I don't really know where, but the song had disappeared. And I think once you take away the style of, of, of singing, there's, there's a song I sing that um, was made up by an American a songwriter called Aunt Molly Jackson. Have you heard of her? No. Wow. Uh, she was a miner's wife, daughter of miners, sister of miners, mother of miners. I was born in all Kentucky. She was, and she wrote very simple songs and she campaigned for the National Union of Miners. She was born, I do believe, somewhere around 1915 and she lived right through the First World War. She lived through uh, the Depression, dirt poor, starvation poor, death poor. And she was possessed with the need to have a union for the miners. I was born in old Kentucky, Kentucky born and bred. And when I joined the union, they called me a Russian Red. And one of her best songs to me, and this is, I'm getting to the point about style. The song really 
should tell you how it should be sung in a way. You don't sing the outlandish night, which is a story that is very, very important because it is a feminist song where she shoves him into the ocean. It's a great song. It's a Bluebeard song. And if, if you make it so that you can't even understand the words, what is the hell is the point? It's like saying, once upon a time, there was a fairy, and you're accompanying it with, with, with seven bass drums and eight trombones, and, and it's not a fairy story anymore. Its purpose is gone. Think you just summed up so beautifully what I also think is for me the heart of folk music is that nothing ever should get in the way of the story you are telling whether that be wild instrumentation or you know it doesn't mean that you can't have beautiful music and tunes interjecting it doesn't mean that you can't have you know wildly skillful singing but always it should be to to the benefit of the story than its detriment you know that you are the vessel for the tale is absolutely how I feel about it and it's really wonderful to have your your insights on it so to get back to Aunt Molly Jackson as a singer I never sing any of her songs with a pretty voice and I can sing or I used to be able to sing with a pretty voice and this song, and I'll just sing it for you, and we can maybe close down on it, unless there's something else that you want to talk about. And it sounds to me as if there's lots you want to talk about. <laughs> you cannot sing this song. It is lived. Now, I've only been in jail for, for one night in my life, and that was only for about, mm, I think, about eight hours. And that was for having to do with cruise missiles. I have once been so near death that I nearly died two, three, four times so near death, I nearly died. Um, but that was three times through foolishness and, and once through being ill in the wrong place at the wrong time. So how do I sing a song about a man in the Depression who has no work, who robbed somebody, who is thrown in jail for a year, and then who is loosed out on the streets? And Molly Jackson, Aunt Molly Jackson does it in two brilliant verses and a fantastic chorus. How do you sing it? Now, the main thing is she wasn't a singer. She couldn't sing. She wasn't good at it. Her singing was, was what lots of people call non-singing. To me, it's absolutely brilliant because it fits with what the subject is about. So her song goes like this. <clears throat> and it's, I haven't had a drink in a while. and I'm a little bit rusty and I didn't warm up this morning, which I should have. But that's good for this song. This is not the way she sang, um, but it's the way I... It's the only way I can do it, you know. As I was walking down Peacock Street, no clothes on my back, no shoes on my feet. I was cold, I was hungry. It was late in the fall. I knocked down some old big shop, took his money clothes and all. Well, now I took everything that old big shot had, and they called me a robber. Now they call me bad. They called me a robber, called me bad. But misery and starvation done drove me mad. So tell me how long must I look for a job? I don't want to have to steal. I don't want to have to rob. They put me in jail for a year and a day for taking all that old big shots, money and clothes away. Then they turned me loose 
about an hour ago. Had to walk these same old streets in the rain and snow. I got no money for a room rent. I got nothing to eat. We just can't live by walking the street. So tell me how long must I look for a job? I don't want to have to steal. I don't want to have to rob. So, you know, now if you sing that pretty, as I was walking down Peacock Street, <laughs> immediately, uh, it's a lie. Yeah. And the style when you're singing a ballad is to tell the story. It's not to have a fantastic accompaniment, get everybody's adrenaline up. So what they call folk, to get back to the subject, uh, I'm a dinosaur and you probably shouldn't listen to me at all because I'm, I'm living in, a, in a, a time at which I am sorely out of step with every definition of folk that I hear. <laughs> But I think I think to sum up what you've said to one word there, we're always looking for authenticity, authenticity of the story to, you know, to just share these these tales and, and messages the very best that we can. But we want to thank you so much for your time today, Peggy. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. You were a font of knowledge and kindness and generosity and i know that people oh, are going lovely praise is just great <laughs> <laughs> i'm being very careful to avoid the words icon legend <laughs> no it's been an absolute pleasure so you take care out there and we hope to speak to you again thank you lucy thank you pinky thank I'll, you. I'll record my friend pat and send it to you Massive thanks to Peggy Seeger for so generously giving us her time and to you, our listeners, for joining us on this adventure. Make sure that you're following Peggy on Bandcamp. You can find her there, peggyseeger.bandcamp.com because her new single, The Invisible Woman, comes out on the 5th of February. It's the first single from her new album, The First Farewell. And you can get over there and pre-order it and have a listen to some of the fabulous tracks that are coming up from this seminal artist. And if you want more from the podcast, you can join us on the 17th of February for an interview with singer-songwriter and community activist Katie Rose Bennett. Katie talks to us about her personal journey in the folk industry, her experience of writing music with refugee women and girls, and about how music can really be a vehicle for change. And I attempt to rewrite a traditional song with feminism in mind in collaboration with brilliant singer-songwriter Ellie Rees. And in the meantime, at the risk of absolutely mansplaining all of you, please don't forget to share, rate and review the podcast so that others can find us. Take care. Bye. This podcast was a Betty Beetroot production. Ooh.